0: We've been talking about parenting. And the last time we gathered, I mentioned different styles of parenting. Helicopter parents, remember, they hover over them. Parents that just cling to the child 24 7. And then there was another kind of parent, a free range parent. Mike, you remember? Do you remember? how parents sort of let their child go and said, you know, you're on your own, they'll take care of themselves, they'll learn by their mistakes. And this week, I saw on the internet where in Oklahoma, we see an illustration of what happens in free range parenting.
1: We're driving a PULLED OVER <laughs> BY POLICE EARLIER THIS WEEK. FOOTAGE POSTED TO FACEBOOK BY THE ARCHIE POLICE DEPARTMENT SHOWS THE TODDLER, YOU HERE IN A MINI CAR, APPEARING TO BE BRUSHING HER TEETH WHILE DRIVING IN A POLICE VEHICLE. IN FRONT OF A POLICE VEHICLE, I SHOULD SAY. TWO-YEAR-OLD ROSE FERN EXCEEDING THE SPEED LIMIT WHEN POLICE NOTICED THE MINI LAWBREAKER THAT TOOK IMMEDIATE ACTION. THE OFFICER ONLY GAVE ROSE A WARNING, WHICH IS GOOD HERE, BUT LOOK, I GIVE HER CREDIT. SHE'S TRYING TO BRUSH HER TEETH AT THE SAME TIME. But, yeah. uh, It's kind of herking and jerking there a little bit, too.
0: Well, if you saw the Barbie movie, you know that Barbie is driving on the road at one point just jamming
1: out to Indigo Girls. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if that's what Rose is up to (laughs) there, too.
0: I do not recommend free-range parenting, but that's sort of the ultimate of it. We talk about parenting. We, first of all, spent several weeks talking about what it means to have a marriage that's based on biblical principles. And I said, which I firmly believe and can affirm that if the Bible teaches us about marriage, if those principles are not true, nothing else the Bible teaches us also can be true. Also what the Bible teaches us about parenting is true or it negates the other teaching of the Bible. And notice how this works together so beautifully. The bond of marriage is the God-given foundation for the bond and the calling to parenthood. Marriage, parenthood. It's not that a single parent could not do it, certainly we have some Beautiful illustration of that going on in our church right now. But God's plan was for marriage, that foundation, and on that foundation, you would have parenthood. And the bottom line of all of this, God teaches us as husband, wife, to love our mate unconditionally. And then the Bible teaches us that we are to love our children unconditionally. Where in the world does that unconditional love come from? Ideally, as the husband, and wife love one another, the overflow of their love to the children is where unconditional love is manufactured. The perfect picture would be a couple who would be hugging one another and a toddler would come in and unnoticed until the toddler begins to make his way between the father and the mother and this husband wife and they bend down as they hug one another, the toddler is in the middle receiving that unconditional love that came forth from the unconditional love of a man for his wife perfect, biblical, biblical picture of how to parent. And our problem today is how do you parent in a broken world, in a broken culture, and the the challenge is so high, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the ministry of a church that loves kids, it can be done and it will be done in this family of faith. For hundreds and thousands of years since the dawn of history, children have been pushed aside. In many cultures, you could let the child live or let the child die. If the child was like they wanted the child to be, the child would be retained. If not, the child would be given away, thrown away, done away with, put away, out of sight, out of mind. And generally speaking, that's the whole culture of the world with few exceptions, with few exceptions until Jesus. Jesus took the female and elevated her to equality male and female, bond or free, equality with the male gender. Jesus did that. And Jesus also took the child and put him on the center of the stage where the child is rarely if ever found on the center of the stage. And we see it beautifully in many places, but none clearer, I think, Then we find in the book of Mark. The disciples are in Galilee, in Capernaum to be precise, and they were debating with people about divorce, and finally they were talking about when Jesus brings in this kingdom, what position am I gonna have? Asked Andrew, what position am I gonna have? Asked Thomas, what position will we have when the kingdom is established? And they're debating this, and Jesus comes up to them and said, what are you guys talking about? Silence. And then Jesus looks out and sees a little boy, perhaps a toddler, and this is what he does. Listen to the words, taking a child Mark 9, 36, he set him before them, taking him in his arms, and he said to his apostles, disciples, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. In other words, he took that child in his arms, he said, Man, this child receives me and I receive this child and the one who sent me, my heavenly father, receives this child as well. The child was put in the center to show an example of what leadership and what position in the kingdom of God is all about. But then they take off and they start talking about other theological, very important issues. And then finally, Jesus looks at them in verse 42. Right after that, he says, listen, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he'd been cast into the sea. Is that pretty serious? Does that sound over the top, even for Jesus? If anyone messes around with, confuses, lies to, abuses any of these little ones, it would be the best thing for them if you tied a big rock, of stone around their neck and threw them in the sea and they were drowned. Boy, that sounds pretty severe, doesn't it? That's the words of Jesus. Now, you would think that those apostles would have understood the centrality of a child. No one's going to get in the kingdom unless they have the humility of a child, the grace of a child, the understanding of a child, not to be childish, but to be childlike, the secret of greatness. Now, they didn't get it. In the very next chapter, that's the ninth chapter, they left Galilee in the north, and they moved to Judea in the south, and now a large crowd gathered around Jesus, and there were children in the crowd. There were children in the crowd, and the children looked at Jesus, and he was a central figure as he was teaching, and the children were rushing to him, and the parents, were perhaps taking the children, wanting Jesus to place his hand on them and to set them aside and to honor them as we sought to do today in our own way. But the apostles, look what they were doing. The apostles said, verse 13, chapter 10 to Mark, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. They said, hey, hey, we're doing big stuff. You know what they were talking about? Divorce and marriage. That's pretty important. The children were coming to Jesus. I don't know how many, a large crowd, a lot of kids, toddlers, four, five, six-year-olds come to Jesus. And boy, the apostle says, we're doing big stuff here. We've got important things going on. You parents, take care of your children. Man, this is the Messiah. And we're pushing him away and then we see something that we see only three other times in the Bible. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Tell you something, Jesus snapped, bang. This only happened three times in the scripture. Mark three in the synagogue, He's gonna heal a man with a withered arm. And all the Pharisees were looking and said, well, is he gonna do this on the Sabbath day? And Jesus snapped righteous indignation toward their attitude toward healing. And then we know in the next chapter in our book here, in chapter 11, Jesus, before he was crucified in that last week, went to the temple and saw all of those in God's house taking advantage of people in exchanging coins and selling goods, it was like the marketplace. Exploiting people, even who come from far to worship on that high and holy day. And Jesus snapped and he got that whip and he went through that sacred temple and he cleaned out all those con artists, all those phonies, all those hypocrites who were exploiting in the name of religion, the people who would come. And then in our scripture today, Jesus snapped when they saw them pushing the children away. And Jesus said, permit the little children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, Whoever who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Hmm. And Jesus took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying hands on them. Jesus took children and put them at the center of his ministry. Let me ask you something. What has happened to the body of Christ for 2,000 years? Basically, the church has said, put the children over there, get them out of the way. Let me tell you something about the second family right here in which we are a part of in this worship service we love kids and we can prove it because they are central in everything we do in this church family now in most churches you'll have a time we need somebody to work with the junior high kids won't somebody volunteer? Nobody will go and work with those, you know, those junior high kids. and in middle school. Man, we need people to go to the middle school. How desperately? Well, oh, high school, would you dare work with those high school kids? We don't do that here. We've never done that here. When somebody comes and says, you know, maybe God has equipped you to work with this age group or that age group or that age group, You are privileged because we don't beg, we solicit and find those who are most gifted and loving kids and bringing them up along with mom and dad in the way God has designed them. This is how we operate this church. Highest priority, our kids. (laughs) And then as parents, as parents, I've said many times, I'd like a, we do, I'd like to say, hey, let me, let me do this thing over again with my three sons. But somehow with a great mama, they have done all right in walking with the Lord, and I thank God for that. But we'd all like to go back and do it a little more biblically than we did. I would, you would. Well, what is the way you bring up kids biblically? The Bible is full of that. We're gonna be dealing with that in the weeks to come. You want to know how to bring up a child in the 21st century, God's way, that's what we're talking about. We've already talked about it. Back, you remember, in the book of Proverbs, that remind you sort of where we've been. Proverbs says clearly, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train of a child in the way he should go or he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Remember, I told you that was not a promise that was a principle. We are to train up a child in, it's singular, the way. There's not a lot of ways. We can do it a lot of ways, but God has only one way, and we talk about God's way as to how to do it. One way. And then we turn over to Ephesians, and Paul elaborates, Ephesians chapter number six, on that one way. Very briefly he says it. Ephesians 6-4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We'll talk about that in discipline in weeks to come. How to discipline. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, train them up, he said, in the way, and now we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Remember the stages of bringing up kids? And the stage from three to 13, and by the way, these ages are not dogmatized. They may be 14, they may be 12. They're not dogmatized, but in that period of time, after the mother stops being a 24-7 servant of the child and begins to toilet train, begin to bring the child up to do some things for him or herself. Then you begin that critical period of three to 13. And that's when we have to discipline. That's the word, that's a part of the training. And then we are to instruct. You have to discipline before you instruct. That's very important. What do I mean by that? I mean that when mom or dad says yes or no, or stop or start, they they obey virtually every time if you do it right, when you say it the first time. The University of Washington has begun a study. It's an extensive study, quite interesting. It said, if a father or stranger tells a child to do or not to do something, they generally obey, but if a mother tells a child to do or not do to something, it takes 800 times less to do it. The mother says it over and over and over and over and over again, and loses that authority. Whereas the father may say it, and there's, they're more obedient. There's 800 difference there, 800 times different. So moms, wake up. Say it once. Say it again. You say, well, I want my child to be happy. We're not in the happy meal business, parents. <laughs> some parents say, Oh, well, I want to keep her happy. I want to keep him happy. Let me tell you, it's expensive to be a parent. There has to be controls. There have to be some absolutes. There have to be some lines drawn. And you can do it without being over the top. We'll talk about this one. it's coming up, not today. But that's what you, you have to speak. You have to start up front and it is discipline of children. I, I ask uh, myself, how in the world did, how, were, how, how did my mom discipline me? And I look back on it and I can tell you, I thought from three to 13, even after, I had the meanest mom in the world. I really did. She was tough. She didn't mess around. There was absolute here and absolute there until finally, And I remembered this, hadn't thought about it in years. I must've been about 10 years old. And somehow I got into a disagreement with my mother. And at that age, I began to try to explain to her how she was wrong and I was right. (laughs) She didn't agree and didn't bat an eye. So I said, I'm going to leave home. I'm going to run away. I remember it like yesterday. I can tell you right where I was standing in our house, and she said, "Okay." And so I got my little bag. Don't forget your toothbrush, like the girl in the car. Get, don't forget a chat. So I got my little bag, and I'm, I'm out of here. I knew where I was going. See, I had aunt and uncle had no children. They lived about a mile and a half from us. And when I went there, whoo, man, it was great. No problems. So I was heading for Aunt Gladys, Uncle Howard's house. I went out the front door. I know I turned left. The Tomlinson's live next door. I turned left again to go through the park, to go to Aunt Gladys, Uncle Howard's house, cause I was out of that place where they get caused me so much trouble. He kept saying, no, 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 no. And I got almost out of sight. My mother said, Edwin, I turned around. She said, you left the light on in your room. <laughs> True story. I could not make it up. Listen, in my house, the unpardonable sin was to leave the light on. I mean, we cut, even today, people that work up here, if I go in the office, they're gone, the light is on, they hear from the pastor. I'm that picky about lights. I don't wanna pay those folks and take God's money and throw it away unless it needs to be. And my mother said, you left the light on. She didn't tell me to come back. I knew I had to cut that light out. <laughs> so I retraced my step, went to the corner, went by the Watkins' house, went back in front of the Tomlinson's house, turned up my thing and went in there and cut the light out. And In the process, I decided, you know, this isn't a bad deal after all. I think I'll stay at home. <laughs> Discipline. Now, if you think that's bad, I asked Lisa about this, my wife. Her mother was strong as steel, just like my mother. And so, she was taught to do certain things when she got up every day, and her three older brothers, younger brothers, they did the same thing every day, chores, which is a terrific idea, parents. I know you may have never heard of that before. You may call it child abuse, but they need to have chores, three to 13. And so, Lisa got up, went to school, was in the first grade. And her mother appears at the door and looks at the teacher and says, I want to take Lisa out. And in those days, you know, no big deal. And so Lisa got up, got her books, went with her mother and her mother didn't say anything, took her to the car. And, and Lisa said, what's wrong? Her mother said, you didn't make up your bed this morning. <laughs> Hello, she took her home First grade, Lisa made up her bed, took her back to school. To this day, to this day, if I'm not out of the bed, she'll make me up in the bed. (laughs) She makes up the bed every morning. Now what is all of this childhood silliness about? Parents don't miss the principles. In that period of time, you have to dominate control with ease, with determination, with repetitive teaching so that your children will learn to respond. When they're running the street, you can say stop and they will stop. That's parenting, biblical parenting. You want to make it a little fancier? We have in our brain 86 billion neutrons. I counted them yesterday. <laughs> 86 billion neutrons are in our brain. And they have those little electrical and chemical impulses in which they communicate with one another as to how we act and what we do and how all our habits are. Those chemical electrical impulses called synapse, synapses. It's nothing but it's where they pass through. Now, to change a synapse in your brain or my brain, it takes about 400 repetitions to change, to change something that's in there, 400. Unless in a child you teach games and through games and play, a child can change in about 10 plus repetitions. How does that work? Well, you'll teach your child to respond. You remember Simon Says? If you didn't play Simon Says, I don't know if you're an adult. (laughs) Well, we played Simon Says. Simon Says, and by the way, if you do what Simon Says, you're okay if you do not do what Simon Says or Simon doesn't say do it, you don't do it and you're out of the game, remember? Simon says, pat your head, okay. Simon says, touch your nose. Simon says, touch your chin, touch your ear, and you touch your ear, but Simon didn't say it, so you're out. You see what you're teaching? You see what you're teaching? You're rewiring a part of their brain. We used to play I Spy. You ever play I Spy? You'd be in a room saying, I spy, I spy something that is red. What, what's, what is it? They'd look around. And finally they'd name things. Oh, it was that flower? Yes. Teaching concentration. Teaching looking for colors. That's how we train up our children. That's part of the mechanism that we use. And that is a part how we teach them discipline. Come, go, stop, lift. Here you are. And we do that from three to 13. And then we begin in the latter part of that period and into the teenage period you begin to do something else. You give instructions. Do this, why? No reason, I said do it. And then if after they have done it, they want information, then you tell them why. Not before, remember? That's where we mess up, parents. I messed up many times. And therefore, first there is discipline, absolutes. We don't do this, we do this. And then following that, there is instruction. And that's where we begin to train. And we talked about it, the different ways that you instruct. What is our goal for our kids? That our sons and daughters will be that man, that woman, God designed them to become. How do we reach that goal? Several ways. What is a part of this instruction? The first part, you want to Make them like Jesus. Build in their life Jesus principles. Jesus principles. They're books we can read. Remember our church showed me a super book I hadn't seen, the the Bible as, as Jesus would write. We give books to parents to read to your children at night, the stories of the Bible, the stories of Jesus. And that's the way we begin to build an appetite, an appetite for Jesus. How does this work? In the Hebrew world, when a baby was going from milk to solid food, they would take a date paste, which was sweet, and put it in the roof of their mouth, and they would then begin to transition from milk to solid food. That was creating an appetite. Some of us like salty snacks, others love like sweet snacks. If you like salty snacks, in all probability, you were born prematurely and somewhat, and therefore premature children usually have an absent, not enough sodium. If your mother ate a lot of candy or sweets when she was pregnant, probably you have a sweet tooth. They've traced all this. So you create an appetite for your child for God, so you can see if you're training them up in the thoughts and the mannerism of Jesus. Now, I want you to show you a young child, who's on the internet, and he's on there rather regularly. But here is a mom or a dad who's somebody who's taught this young man, this young child about Jesus. I want you to look at it, listen to it.
1: Good morning, everybody. So look, this motivational Monday, and I know a lot of y'all beginning on this page for me to crack a joke or two, but that's not really what I'm feeling today. I wanna just come and tell y'all something, just pray. That's all you got to do is pray. Just pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Pray for your enemies. Pray for the hospitals. Pray for the jails. Pray for the schools. Pray for the nurses. Pray for the doctors. Just just pray, y'all. Pray, pray for the f- police officers. Just pray. Because the world that we're living in, y'all, is crazy. And I just want y'all to pray. We got to gotta. We gotta We got a crazy world that we're living in. Pray for my generation. Pray for the generation after me and the generation next. Just pray, y'all. It don't take nothing to pray, and it's free. Just pray, y'all. Hey.
0: Do you think his folks are not doing a good job and bringing him up in the atmosphere of Jesus? That is what we're about, folks. That's it. And the next thing we do, you say, I want my son or daughter to be like Jesus, and I want them to be like me. Can you stand up and say, boy, I hope my son turns out like their daddy, or I hope my daughter turns out like their mother, can you honestly say that? And so many times, the son turns out like the father. I want you to see a little picture of that right here. This is a tragic thing. See the dad, see the son. I wonder how that boy's gonna turn out. Anybody wanna make a wild guess? Look closely. I think I recognize the father. You see, that's the problem. Remember I've said it many, many times, children do what we require them to do until they get to be teenagers or a little older, they begin to do what you do and what I do. Can you say, I want my son to be like their father? Well, I'd do anything for my son, but that, to believe in God, to be faithful to his church, to read that Bible every day. That's our goal. well, I'm bringing my child to do what? To be like Jesus, build that biblical principle. This young kid has got it. Somebody has built him up like Jesus, right? Next thing, say, I want my son and my daughter to be like me. And the third thing we can say, we want them to be in the family, to know they're in the family of God. Let me tell you something. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. Huh. If children live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with fear, they learn to be apprehensive. If children live with pity, they learn to feel sorry for themselves. If children live with ridicule, they learn to feel shy. If children live with jealousy, they learn to feel envy. If children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. But if children live with encouragement, they learn confidence. If children live with tolerance, they learn patience. If children live with praise, they learn appreciation. If children live with acceptance, they learn to love. If children live with approval, they learn to like themselves. If children live with recognition, they learn it is good to have a goal. What are your children? What are your children living with? I recorded this, my voice, because I didn't think I'd be able to read it to you with a clear voice at this time. It's 100 years old, it's a father, as he goes into the bedroom of his sleeping son and this is what he wrote down that was on his heart and this these words slam dunk most fathers sledgehammer fathers I couldn't read it but I've already read it listen to what this father wanted to say to this sleeping son Listen, son, I'm saying this as you lie asleep, one little paw crumpled under your cheek and the blonde curls stickly wet on your damp forehead. I have stolen into your room alone. Just a few minutes ago, I sat reading my paper in the library and stifling wave of remorse swept over me. Guiltily, I came to your bedside. There are things I was thinking, son. I've been cross with you. I scolded you as you were dressing for school because you gave your face merely a a dab with a towel. And then I took you to task for not cleaning your shoes. I, I called out angrily when you threw some of your things on the floor. At breakfast, I found faults too. You spill things, you gulp down your food, you put your elbows on the table, you spread butter too thick on your bread. And as you started off to play, I left for my train, and you turned and waved a hand and called, Goodbye, Daddy. And I frowned and said in reply, Hold your shoulders back. Then it began all over again in the late afternoon. As I came up the road, I spied you down on your knees playing marbles, and I humiliated you in front of your friends by marching you ahead of me to the house stockings were expensive if you had to buy them you'd be more careful imagine that son from a father or dad do you remember later when I was reading in the library how you came in timidly and with that sort of hurt look in your eyes remember that and I glanced up over my paper impatient at the interruption you hesitated at the door what is it you want I snapped you said nothing you ran across in one tempestuous plunge and threw your little arms around my neck and kissed me and your small arms tightened with an affection that God had set blooming in your heart and which even neglect could not wither. Then you were gone pattering up the steps Well, son, it was shortly after that my paper slipped from my hands and a terrible, sickening fear came over me. What has habit been doing to me? The habit of finding fault, of reprimanding. This was my reward to you for simply being a boy. It was not that I did not love you, it was that I expected too much of youth. I was measuring you by the yardstick of my own years, and there was so much that was good and fine and true in your character. The little heart of you was as big as a dawn itself over the wide hills, and this was shown by your spontaneous impulse to rush in and kiss me good night. Nothing else matters tonight, son. I've come to your bedside in darkness, I have knelt there. Ashamed, ashamed. It is a feeble atonement. I know you would not understand these things if I told them to you during your waking hours. But tomorrow, tomorrow I'll be a real daddy. I will chum with you and suffer when you suffer and laugh when you laugh. I will bite my tongue when impatient words come. I will keep saying as if it were a ritual. He is nothing but a boy, a little boy. I'm afraid I have visualized you as a man. Yet as I see you now, son, crumpled and weary in your bed, I see that you're still a baby. Yesterday you were in your mother's arms, your head on her shoulder. I've asked too much, way, way too much.